who make outsized impacts on our lives. They could be our family members. They could be people we work with. They might be somebody we work for. They might be somebody who's elected or something. But they're also a bunch of unelected people, small groups of people that have outsized influence on our lives. Who is this shadowy cabal, you might ask? On whom are we going to focus a spotlight as a means of exposure? Or are we going to jump the shark or call out dragon aliens, Alex Jones style? No, there's a pretty good chance you might even know personally some of these people. A small group of people with outsized influence on our lives. They are undecided voters. And each election cycle, outsized attention is put on this sliver of the electorate. These people who don't know exactly what they think about a given candidate or a given political party or a given piece of ideology or core political philosophy. And very often, this group, of course, routinely proves, more often than not, to decide election outcomes. And to help further explain the mysterious intentions of undecided voters, we are joined by Oscar Pocasangre of New America. He might help us further explain the mysterious intentions of undecided voters. He also might help us figure out how we can pull them into the decided camp. Oscar, thank you for your patience and welcome to Democracy Nerd. Thank you for having me. You co-authored research paper for New America it is entitled Undecided Voters. Who are they? What do they want? And how they decide our politics? How did, it may be too obvious a question, but how did you start to dig in on this topic? Yeah, so we thought undecided voters are a bit unexplored, even though they have, as you said before, an outsized influence on our elections. We know about the partisans, we know about Republicans and Democrats, what they want, how they feel about the parties and about the candidates, but we didn't have a good sense of undecided voters and what do they want out of policy? What do they want out of government and their politicians and what makes them tick? Um, so we analyzed surveys from a um, couple different years to figure out undecided voters and their intentions, as you said. And one of the important thing about undecided voters is that in our winner-take-all system, especially in this polarized winner-take-all system, it's these votes in the middle of people who might go one way or the other that will have an outsized influence in who wins the election in, the, in, in a particular district and then who can win control of the House or of, or of the Senate. So even though they're a small percentage of the population, they can be very pivotal in, in close elections and in swinging um, control of the House or of Senate to Republicans or to Democrats. So that was a motivation to, to start this, this report. How did you get into this mess? How did you start doing this stuff? Um, I'm a political scientist by training and a lot of you know the bread and butter of political science is trying to understand voters, why they vote a certain way, what convinces them to vote a different way, and what role do campaigns play in convincing voters, or do they play, do they even play a role in convincing voters or swaying voters one way or the other? And then the other big reason why why we were interested uh, in this topic with my co my co-author Lee Jutman of New America is. Because we're interested also in, in the electoral institutions and in identifying kind of like the pathologies of the winner-take-all system and understanding what is, what is it about the winner-take-all system that contributes to a lot of the ills that we have in our politics right now, like polarization, 
partisan sorting as well. Um, and the fact, you know, that this very slim majorities in, in Congress as well. So we think the, the fact that undecided voters are so influential in the elections shows there's something wrong about the winner-take-all system. And it's part of a, a broader research agenda and, and work of trying to figure out what would it take to move to a more, a more proportional system where all votes would count more or less equally and not just the votes of a small segment of the society. So who are these undecided voters? Yeah, so I guess that's the first challenge that we had to figure out is like, how do we, how do we find these undecided voters? And most of what we know about undecided voters is from survey, from surveys, from public opinion polls. And at the end of the day, it comes down to like the definition of people who tell us that they are undecided in the survey. When we ask them, like, who do you plan to vote for in the upcoming election? A small share of people are always undecided. It's hard to tell like what type of undecided voters there are. We can think of different typologies of undecided voters um, out in the world. Uh, there can be undecided voters who maybe they're just trying to get information from all the different candidates and they just haven't haven't made their decision quite yet. Um, or maybe there are other voters who are undecided because they don't pay much attention to politics and they figure, um, I'll worry about this the week of election and then I'll figure it out then. And then there can be uh, people who are undecided because they just don't care that much about politics or not as engaged. So they actually don't have much of an opinion or, or a, a stance about some of these of, of the candidates. Um, so it's this weird grouping of people because you can be undecided in different ways. Um, but overall, there are some consistent traits among among these groups. They tend to be younger, younger voters. They tend to be voters with lower levels of of education, less wealthy than the average as well, um, and less politically aware. These are voters who are not paying attention to politics all the time, who are not following cable news every single day, or are not refreshing Twitter every every day. Uh, these are voters, you know, they're busy living their lives and they haven't found or the parties haven't done quite a good job at linking them uh, to politics. No, that's really helpful. Thank you. Let's pause there for a second because so many campaign discussions, and I don't just mean internally in campaigns, but I do mean that over the years, but also people anticipating campaigns. So many people consider themselves sort of political expert because, you know, they read the newspaper, watch the news, and so they, they think, oh, this politician's an idiot, or these campaigns are idiots. Why don't they, aren't they smarter like I am? Right? But we imagine these conversations, and you'll hear the swing voter come up. And mm -hmm. I think the idea that people have in their heads of the swing voter is that somebody who is, well, they're in the middle. They're in the middle on economic policy, or they're in the middle on a woman's right to choose. Right. They're sort right. of like, oh, yeah, women should have the right to choose, but there should be some limits or, yeah, Social Security shouldn't go away, but we should all let you know, we, we don't want to have taxes on rich people be too high or or, yeah, the environment is good and we sort of care about it. But I still want to make sure I don't I'm not like impacted to the gas pump. Right. So we sort of think right. of the swing voter, the undecided voter is this person. But what yeah. you just said was something different than that was or we might think it's somebody who has very strong views. So that's one bucket of undecided voter that I could imagine. Another bucket of undecided voter that I could imagine is somebody who is the is the old Reagan Catholic, 
right? Or the or even the new Reagan uh, Biden voter, the person who's well. My preacher told me that abortion was wrong, but they also said that I'm supposed to be good to the poor. And I also think Donald Trump is deeply immoral, and I don't really want an authoritarian state. But on the other hand, uh, I uh, I like getting my tax cuts, right? They, so they, they might have a mixture of views, right? They might like two or three strongly held things about guns or something else on that sided with one party and a couple other strongly held things that are a swing because they have a tug and pull between them. That'd be another bucket that we could imagine. But you right. just said that maybe the biggest bucket of undecided voters aren't people who are dwelling with great challenge over the tug and pull of their values. Are they feeling a little bit more in the center to the left or to the right? Or are they feeling a little more tugged by one set of views or another set of views? But they just kind of don't think about it as much. <laughs> and it's, and, and right. it's, not an, it's not an issue of being more granular necessarily. Maybe it is. But it might also be an issue of just reaching them. I, I think that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's important that you bring up these distinctions because oftentimes when we talk about these mythical type of voters, we often confuse or talk about them the same way as we talk about like swing voters, undecided voters, independents. And I think conceptually, they are different types of voters. So swing voter, I think you can be a very decided voter and be a swing voter if one election, you know, you're very decided to vote for the Republican candidate. And then the other election, you're very decided that this time I'm going to vote for the Democrat. Those are more mythical than the undecided voters. Those are harder to find out there uh, in the world. What percentage of the person who's who's not just undecided, but truly swing, truly goes back and forth? Truly swing? Uh, I don't know the the a recent percentage. I know I know the share of like, actual swing voters who won one election, they'll vote for one party and the other election, they'll vote for the other has been decreasing consistently over, over, over the years. Um, there is very small share of the electorate. Um, so that's one group of voters. The other group of voters are independents. Independents actually turn out to be quite partisans themselves, but they like calling themselves independent. These are people who don't really like the parties or feel a bit anti-party, but at the end of the day, they'll vote for one of the parties. Um, and then undecided voters, as you, as you said, you can be undecided in different ways. Um, you know, you can think of, you know, consumers when they're going to buy something. Oftentimes when I'm at the grocery store, I just, I'm standing there trying to choose a different type of cereal and I'm undecided while I'm doing that. And then eventually I can reach a decision. Uh, but sometimes there's a product I don't really care about. And I'll just I'll just choose whatever brand. And I think an analogy can be made about voters in the same way, where you can have undecided voters that are thinking about their choice and who are they going to vote. And there can also be undecided voters who you know they probably don't care that much. They're indifferent to to it at the end of the day, and they'll vote based on. And in the report, we say that's uh, some like random noise or like just like random decision making at the end of the day. And those, at least in the United States, that tends to be the more prevalent type of undecided voter. So you're right. It's not that much a voter that is dwelling and trying to figure out, OK, this is all the information I have about the candidates. I haven't made up my mind yet. And I'll weigh different things, uh, whether their policy stands or how they perform in debate. It's more a voter who 
probably doesn't even see the debates or doesn't follow the news. So you said in the United States, is it different in other countries? Yes. Yeah, it, it varies. Um, other countries that have different types of, of electoral systems, if you have more parties as well, you, you, you might have more choices as, as a voter. In that sense, uh, we see more undecided voters who are actually weighing, okay, maybe I'll vote for this party or, or this other party. So it might come down to more, more, a more informed policy, uh, a more informed voter in, in those cases. Um, there are also voters who, yes, also don't care about, about policies and, and the stances of the politicians. Um, but we do see more of a mix in, in other countries. And I think a lot of, of this is the role that the parties play at engaging voters and engaging citizens into politics. I, I mean, I don't blame voters for, for being undecided, but it's more about how parties are, what are the strategies of the parties at bringing into the fold people, um, bringing into, into politics these voters. It's not merely and not mostly, and maybe it's less and less, or not maybe, it is less and less because voters care more in a conflicting way, but because they haven't yet been persuaded enough to care overall or to care in a specific way. Right. You also said it's getting, I was going to say worse, but it's getting more pronounced. The, the, the number of truly swing as distinct from undecided and maybe more indifferent voters is that, that share of truly swing voters has been reducing. Uh, have you thought about how come? I also want to get to the implications. We thought, I would have my own speculations, but have you done analysis on how come we've seen it reduce? I, mean, I sort of see it, I guess, as sort of the, just part of the big political sort we've seen generally, right, ever since essentially the Civil Rights Act. But go, what are right. your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's the right view of, of why swing voters are becoming such rare voters out, out there. I think the partisan sorting has meant that most people have already sorted themselves into different camps. So before you could be a liberal Republican or a bit of conservative Democrat, but ever since uh, the 1960s after the Civil Rights Act and this realignment of the parties, we've seen everyone who held liberal positions sort themselves into the Democratic Party and people who generally hold conservative positions sort themselves into the Republican Party. So I think that explains a lot of why why we see fewer and fewer swing voters. We see evidence of that in in other indicators like ticket splitting. We see fewer fewer rates of ticket splitting in, in elections as well. Exactly. Yeah. Or governor or governor, Republican, Senate, Democrat. So within the same ballot changing their their vote their vote choice yeah so how did you collect the data what was your, your methodology so for this study we relied on survey data uh, we used um, data from the voter study group nationscape that they've been they were collecting different waves of data uh, interviewing people um, up to 2021, from 2019 to 2021. So it's an interesting period for sure in, in American politics. So we had a lot of, of data about the position of, of voters and survey respondents. 
And the the survey also asked about a lot of policy positions. So we were able to look not just at the demographics of these undecided voters, but also what are the policy positions of undecided voters and of partisan voters as well. Look, Democracy Fund at UCLA, uh, Nationscape Surveys, as I understand it, and all these waves of data. Anything surprise you in particular? Yeah, so I would say one surprising thing when we were looking at, at the policy positions is we saw you know voters hold all sorts of positions on, on different issues. Um, one thing that, that stood out was how most Democrats are aligned when it comes to social issues, but more varied when it comes to, to economic issues. So it kind of seems like- When you say aligned, cool. who is aligned? So Democratic, voters for the Democrat party. So what holds that coalition together is that they all, all tend to agree on social issues. The flip is true of Republicans that uh, um, they all agree on, on social issues, but they're all over on economic issues. Wait, I, oh, I, I got it backwards. Wait. No, I, I, I said it wrong. Sorry. Um, sorry. So Republicans are united on social issues, but they have more diverse view when it comes to economic issues. Democrats are more diverse on social issues. Um, but more united on the economic issues. Uh, the surprising thing, like undecided voters are a bit all over the place. They have, we have socially liberal, fiscally conservative, fiscally liberal, socially conservative, undecided voters. So these are kind of like the, the prototype of what we call cross-pressure voters. So voters that have a mix of conservative and liberal positions and that we think is one of the things that makes it so hard to engage with undecided voters, because when it comes to policy, there really is not one message that resonates with all of these undecided voters. Um, so maybe one message might work with part of them, but it might alienate the other part. Um, so it's unclear what is a winning message that a campaign could use to get undecided voters um, out to vote for them. So. That's interesting and, and, and very helpful. I think a key takeaway, another podcast might call it a knowledge bomb or a value bomb. But anyway, this, <laughs> I think is a really helpful, I think it's a really helpful takeaway. So I want to make sure I get it right this time because you say it a couple different ways and I want to make sure I don't say it a couple different ways. I will say it this way and you tell me if I got it right or wrong. That Democrats tend to be a little bit more diverse on social issues and what hens, tends to hold them more together is around economic issues, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, progressive taxation, et cetera. But, but how, you know, a woman's right to choose, although the vast majority would be in favor of women's right to choose, they might diverge a little bit around the margins on that. They might have a little bit different, you know, 10 years ago, they might have some divergent views on, a, on, on uh, LGBTQIAs or marriage rights, right? They might have different views on, on trans bathrooms. Who knows, okay? Uh, yeah. Republicans, on their hand, are really united on trans bathrooms, are really united against Owen's right to choose, at least their base, uh, and more diverse on Social Security, more diverse on campaign finance reform, more diverse on, on progressive taxation, more, con more diverse. I mean, heck, Donald Trump ran for office saying how he wanted to crack down on, on Wall Street cheats. Right. The, uh, 
And so first of all, did I get that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So, so the implications of that are there are then somewhat, I don't know, obvious, but at least compelling. So that shows why then Republicans really want to beat the drum on social issues because that holds them together. And they think they might be able to get a few, you know, wayward Democrats who on that voting particular day might care more about trans bathrooms, might care more about critical race theory and forget about, you know, stuff about Wall Street or stuff about progressive taxation or stuff about, you know, education funding. Where on the other hand, Democrats could be well viewed, you'd think, then if they talked about economic issues, then they might help keep their people together and get it for Republicans. Although the author, What's the Matter with Kansas, says Democrats haven't been doing that, and that's maybe his maybe his mistake, is, is why he thinks that Democrats are making a big mistake. But implications of that are sort of interesting, and in fact, might even beg the What's the Matter with Kansas question. Yeah. Although I would say they're in, in trying to emphasize these issues, they're mostly trying to get at these undecided voters, uh, less so at voters from the other party. Right? That, that would be rare for it to, to cure. But yeah, by, yeah, so like, um, yeah, Republicans could probably get maybe those socially conservative unde undecided voters, right? Um, but there are socially liberal undecided voters as well. So that could go the other way. So here's, um, and let me just ask if you know this data. I don't. I'm hoping you might. I know that not 100% of Democrats vote for the Democrat. I know not 100% of Republicans vote for the Republican. You also said that independents, not as a whole, but person by person, end, to vote, end up voting in relatively predictable ways. right? If they voted a couple times in a row for Republican, they're going to vote a couple more times in a row for Republican. Yeah, they'll just call themselves independent. Right. So I'm an independent. I mean, that, you know, we, there was a Fox News host, Bill O'Reilly did that, right? Yeah. So that Bill O'Reilly independent, is that somewhat predictable Republican? How predictable are they in their voting as compared to a registered Republican? I wonder if, you know, for the right Republican, it might even be, you might have a Republican that votes for Democrats almost as frequently as an independent. You mean a, a registered Republican Register. or, or one of the yeah, yeah, yeah. self-claimed right. independents? Exactly. Like, like I'm wondering if there's a way to compare the self-claimed independent who actually votes Republican, just just to put it in context relative to, like, for instance, do you, what's the percentage of the time the registered Republican votes for the Republican? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, I don't think I've ever gone down that hole in, in a data set to look, to look that up. But yeah, I think it would be really interesting. I'd be curious. So yeah. moving on then, the, the undecided voter, uh, as you try to categorize them or as campaigns try to categorize them, how do they end up categorizing them? Yeah, I think a lot of times the focus is on undecided voters in swing districts, right? Because that's where, that's where they matter most in, in these pivotal districts or pivotal states. That's where undecided voters matter the most. Less so, they don't matter that much, you know, like a campaign wouldn't really try to figure out a message of like, what what is it that undecided voters want in New York, right? Because I think at least for presidential elections or statewide elections, we New York goes for, uh, goes Democrat. Um, so at the, so what we end up seeing is that a lot of the issues in the swing states end up taking 
national center stage at the expense of other equally valid issues in other states, but they just don't receive that much attention because they're not they're not decisive for for the election. So campaigns tend to focus on on these states and the swing voters in this swing state. So usually a lot of these issues end up being kind of like in recent years we've seen a lot of the issues of that affect suburban voters or you know they usually try to come up with like a one particular voter that campaigns think might swing the election one way or the other so like maybe it's a soccer mom and then try to figure out what are the issues that I literally just wrote that, that down I literally just wrote down. So, yeah, the game becomes defining a demographic, ethnographic, you know, psychographic category, describing that category and trying to market that category. And the two I wrote down were NASCAR dad and soccer mom. Yeah, I hadn't heard of the NASCAR dad. But, yeah, I think uh, soccer moms are like fresh in my mind because of what we've seen in elections like in Virginia, for instance, where it's often seen as a bellwether of, of what's to come. And so much of the focus was on suburban suburban parents and what do they want out of politics and the campaigns end up focusing a lot a lot on on those issues and i think that is troublesome because it, it comes at the detriment of the issues that everyone else cares about right you know all these other voters in other states is they just don't count because of the way our elections are are organized. Yeah, not not everybody has NASCAR or soccer as their top one or two or three priorities. The uh, uh, and I do wonder about those categories. As we think about those categories, I'm curious if there are others. But one that I became aware of some years ago was single moms, and mm-hmm. single moms ends up not. I don't hear about it as much as uh, maybe because it doesn't have as fun a title. I think soccer mom has a fun title, right? Oh, soccer right. mom. It's it's pretty it's sort of visual. You can imagine a minivan and you know, orange wedges, but the, but the single mom isn't maybe, I don't know. It, 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 it's not as, it's not as visceral unless of course you were raised by as I was a single mom or you are a single mom yourself. Uh, any other categories that we should be thinking of as we start trying to parse the undecided voter? Yeah. I feel like other, like, like the soccer mom. I mean, I think a lot of the emphasis right now is just like, like the a normal voter, you know, people want like a normie, just like nothing weird, like voters that don't like weird things, um, whether it's like about, you know, like, I feel like like banning books or a, a lot of these like weird issues that come up when we start talking about identity politics uh, or about democracy itself. So I think that can also be a fruitful categorization of voter of thinking okay we might have voters with diverse policy views but maybe we all care about democracy right and finding who those people are and have like like pro-democracy voters for instance um people who just want to keep things as as they are right so that voice just reminded me of macomb county so macomb county is the county outside detroit that has predicted an unearthly number of presidential elections. It mm-hmm. is it's the it is the county, as I recall, uh, that Eminem is from. It is huh. the it is not with their normie, but it tends to be a white working class county, and that and it's a it's a county that went for uh, Clinton, 
and but then went for Bush. It's a county that went for Obama, but then went for Trump. It's a county mm-hmm. that went for Biden, but then we'll see. So yeah. I think of sort of the Macomb County voter, and I think that's maybe even like sort of the NASCAR dad, right? Is is sort of like the is sort of the the Macomb County, sort of the Macomb County voter. But who is the exercise of finding these folks, as you dig in, any insights, any other any other lessons that we can glean from this? First of all, what's the percentage of the overall electorate? What's the percentage of these voters that you would describe as undecided? So I would say it varies year by year, depending on, you know, maybe some issues are more salient than others that could draw the, the voter in. Uh, at least right now, like latest numbers I've seen for going into into next year, which uh, in presidential election year, um, about 14% of voters say they're undecided. So I would say like 11 to 15% of voters are undecided. Say, say the percentage um, again, forgive me. 11 to 15%. 11 to 15%. 10 to, 10 to 15% 10 to 15. of voters, Got it. I, I would yep. say, yeah. I mean, it, it varies uh, survey to survey. Yeah. But about, yeah, about 15%, 10% of voters are undecided going into 2024 yeah um whether that is surprising you know i think there's i mean still we still have well less than a year now to for the election yeah um and so there's still time for the campaigns to make the case to voters and get some of those undecided voters to one side or the other i will say though that this is a weird election in the sense that that if Trump wins the Republican primary, um, then we'll have a Trump versus Biden rematch. And then I don't think this has happened in quite some time that we've had an incumbent president and a former president running for office. So these are people, these are candidates that people know, right? So I think most people at this point have some opinion about these candidates. Um, so I don't know how much the uh, the undecided voter share will, I think it'll be a lot harder to like, to convince an undecided voter at this point. Yeah, it's a good question because I, um, uh, I started thinking about it and this is, I think at the heart of the Trump strategy, this gets a little far afield, but I will at least take the bait, uh, that we haven't had that many times when a president has lost and then got the nomination again. And it would be interesting how many times that person could win. Normally, a candidate loses, and all their candidates in the primary, all their opponents in the primary, are able to say, well, that person's a loser. You can't nominate them. They just prove they can't win. Nominate me, right? Right. Don't don't nominate Mitt Romney. Yeah, Uh, I think it's only happened once before. Grover Cleveland? I think it was Herbert Hoover with... All right. I don't know. Yeah, I think it might be Grover Cleveland with Harrison. Yes. All right. Yeah. All right. So the, uh, but it occurs to me, and, and I, the, the time I did the research before, the uh, candidates who lost the, uh, who, who won the popular vote, lost the election. Like I thought if Gore had won again, Gore might have won. That's mm-hmm. what I think. And, and I think that one dynamic, and I'm just spitballing, but one dynamic is, could be, um, uh, buyer's remorse. 
that after you do something, it's mm. like, well, do I, you know, it, like maybe you lock, like one is lock in. Well, I, I decided this, I must be right. I only make right decisions. And so it would seem that Biden candidacy could, should say, hey, you are, hey, America, you were correct. You did the right thing. And here's why you did mm-hmm. the right thing. And you were right to not vote this guy because he's, he's nuts and a fascist. So don't do that. Right. Uh, but I could also imagine what the Trump campaign is doing is sort of giving people who say, hey, you know, you, you took a chance and you didn't like that chance. You know, it didn't, it didn't, didn't go as well as you wanted it to go. And so now, remember me, right? Now you, can, you, might, you might regret kicking me out. So I, I actually don't know. And, I, and it might be a wash. Maybe people are more locked in, but maybe they're not more locked in because of, you know, buyers or sellers remorse. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, in that case, it's, you know, this election and the campaign itself will also be quite different from previous campaigns, because if it's uh, Biden Trump, then, yeah, both candidates will have a lot of history to them. And it will depend a lot on how they frame that history to the voters and how what message they they use for voters who tried to convince them. In these undecided voters, the 10 to 50 percent of undecided voters, and we can stick with 2024 presidential election. Well, that's not our only focus, to be clear. Uh, what can we understand about any identifiable cleavages around uh, generation, around geography, around income level? Any of the things we don't understand to sort of, yeah, just help deepen our awareness of this pod of decisive voters? Yeah, so... Um I don't know for for undecided voters for 2024. I know for uh, last year's election for the congressional election, um, undecided voters, it, it's similar to the traits that I was talking about before, where they tend to be younger voters. Yeah, I got it. Um, and yeah, you said poor, voters. poor, poor, younger, uh, less educated, uh, and 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 not and, quite as informed. And disengage from from politics. That, that seems to be a consistent feature of undecided voters. Yeah, yeah. So the um, as we think about trying then to reach undecided voters, what should we understand? Are there common denominators for, or if we keep that in mind, then just you know Sunday morning uh, news shows are probably not what's reaching them. What is? I mean, this is why they start doing ads in video games and you know why social media is such a big deal. Like, how do you? Wh- how are campaigns think about reaching undecided voters? I sound like such a novice when I ask this question. Yeah, I mean that's why you always see a lot of innovation in the platforms that they use to reach to voters. Whether it's you know more like a savvier use of social media now. There's a lot of talk about like TikTok and maybe that's one way to get at politically disengaged like young voters, for instance maybe meet them where they're at and you know they tend to be in TikTok, right um yeah and i think it's it's a lot of it is up to the parties of like finding a way to make the case to the voter that look like this is what we have to offer and uh, this is why you, you should come and vote as well um and because part of part of the challenge is convincing them to come to your site, and then the other challenge is also actually turn out to vote. So campaigns have to weigh both of that. Like, how, how do you get them to vote? And you know, I think these days we see a lot of more targeting through social media and trying to like figure out some profile of a particular of a, these like kind of like ideal types of voters um, and try to target like some very 
like micro targeting the ads to them. I d- I don't know to what extent that that will that is successful a successful strategy. Um, oftentimes when I get an ad, you know, I just keep going or really ignore it or, or discount it. Um, and you know, a lot of political decisions, a lot of voting decisions are social decisions. It's about how your friends are voting, how your neighbors are voting, how your how your families are are voting and thinking about politics as well. So I think maybe a more old school approach could be useful here of like, you know, getting more at, at more like real social networks and like communities and um, introducing politics into that. And, and that's what parties used to, to do historically. There were parties were more embedded in communities. There were, there was more connection between the parties and local communities. So there was more of a connection between these party machines and and the voter. So there's a, an easier linkage to them and, and an easier way to reach out to these voters. Yeah. All right. So it's time for multiple choice. Here's my multiple choice question. Why is it that undecided voters, a statistically small segment of voting population, have such an outsized impact? Mm-hmm. A, just a natural outcome of our two-party first-past-the-post winner-take-all electoral system. B, their incentives to be a holdout. It's nice to be courted after all. If you take longer to send in your ballot, you get more glossy campaign mailings. C, it's just both sidesism writ large. D, they really don't. It's a conspiracy by large media companies to generate clicks and viewers. See also C. E, the political machinations and complex policy differences are simply too much and wash over too many voters, leaving everybody, or at least 10 to 15 percent of the people, understandably confused and unwilling to admit to anyone for fear of being judged. F. We're simply discussing part of the population that realizes it's time to vote in October every four years. G. They're contrarians. like to throw a stick in the otherwise smooth sailing spokes of democracy. Where do spokes sail? Apparently right now. H. All of the above. I. None of the above. J. Some portion of some of the above. I would say, I mean, as a Recovering academic, I would say a little bit of everything of some of these. So, so there's some ambiguity there. Um, some of the big ones there, though, I would say is the the winner-take-all system and just the way that our elections are structured, where it, it comes down to the vote of, you know, well, in, in the competitive districts, it, it comes down to the vote of those undecided voters or to, to the turnout of of those voters and then the fact that only few you know when you look at congressional elections only i forget what's the number for the most recent but it's like in the 40s or 50s the congressional districts that are like up for grabs most districts are like solid blue solid red um and that makes undecided voters so pivotal as well um I don't think it's so much about the holdouts of people holding out to get more, more merch from parties, um, but there could be some, some truth to people being contrarians and um, maybe just like not deciding quite yet because you know we're getting a lot of this, this data about voters from the surveys and a lot of times you know people if people aren't really paying attention to politics they're also maybe not paying that much attention to the survey and they'll go through the survey quickly and 
say, uh, maybe this or maybe that, or, or I haven't really thought about this. So like, I don't know, or unsure, undecided. Um, so you get a lot of those undecided voters in, in the data. Um, and the other I would say is that parties have um, failed a lot at creating good linkages with voters. I think nowadays parties have just become really big fundraising machines instead of really articulating a policy program for voters and listening to voters of, of, of what they want and communicating with voters as well and kind of like under, to understand their problems and then reflecting that in, in what, they're, what they're offering. Um, and that is also partly because of, of the winner-take-all system of American elections. So you've dwelled on the winner-take-all system, and, and even as you introduce your project, you thought, well, maybe if we change the winner-take-all system, that it could improve things or at least help the undecided voter. And I don't know if that means help make them less, less undecided or just give them more options from which to choose. But make that case. In fact, make that case in response to the counter case, which is, well, wait a minute. You just told me that it's not that they're divided on policy. It's that they're not paying as much attention. They have other things going on in their lives, right? They're, they're not yet addicted to some cable news show or some series of social media feeds. So why would it matter if they had more things to choose from? Why would it matter if there, if there was even less clarity in that mm -hmm. choice if lack of clarity might not have been the problem in the first place? Right, yeah. Um, I would say in, if we had a more proportional electoral system that would allow for more parties to emerge, then we could, have, we could imagine, I mean, who knows what, what these parties would look like, but we could imagine that if there are more players out there in the political arena, there could be a party that would articulate some of the policy positions of, of cross-pressure voters, of some of these undecided voters. Well, you just told me so, the cross-pressure voters aren't the key thing of undecided voters. The key thing is under-pressured voters. Well, it's a mix. So it's voters who are disengaged. And maybe because they're disengaged, they also have views that are a bit all over the place. So maybe it takes like a new player to come in who can like kind of figure this out and offer that to them. Or maybe it takes, if we have more competition among parties, then parties will be more motivated to like, to create better linkages with, with their voters and, and, and bring them in, into the political fold as well. Um, it's unclear though, if, you know, maybe if, if we have more parties competing, maybe that might be confusing for voters and, and that might create disengagement. But I think, you know, if we have more competitive elections, that, that is usually one thing that gets more people to pay attention to politics. Um, right now, we don't have that many competitive elections in, in the United States, uh, at the, in Congress at least. So if we had more competitive elections where your vote actually mattered, um, then that would draw more people in. Yeah, and if you had more competitive think, local elections than the a higher number of competitive local elections, then that might engender more of the kind of local uh, activism that you think actually might help, right? Instead of just exactly. being bombarded by more ads, you know, with somebody that knocked on your door or somebody that you knew from church or somebody that you knew from school that, uh, that, 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 might, that, that might help. For what it's worth, I, have, I agree with you on... Uh, on both things. One, I find your analysis on undecided voters really interesting and compelling. And second, I think we should uh, reconsider voting systems. I just don't know that the prime, I just, 
I think it's interesting. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't assume uh, a set of clear linkages between those two things, right? That, that yeah. in fact, and some of the reasons to be we might sure, want, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, to be sure, there are undecided voters everywhere in the world, right? So yeah. even in, you know, the the ideal type that people in, in the electoral reform space usually talk about, you know, like countries like Germany, there are undecided voters in Germany as well. There are undecided exactly. voters in, exactly. in multi-party systems. So, yeah. um, but I think maybe the type of undecided voter could change. Yeah. I don't know. I think it would be, that that's a, that's an open question to see, yeah. like, maybe we would have more of the undecided voter that is like thinking through their options because they actually have different options in a multi-party system. Um, and less like the disengaged undecided voter. Mm-hmm. So maybe we would just have a different type of, of undecided voter. And also like, um, I think a lot of the disengagement comes of undecided voters in the United States comes from um, the fact that it often feels that your vote doesn't matter. So like, what's mm-hmm. the point of having to spend time figuring out what the candidate positions are and coming up with a decision or with a vote choice if you know like you know my district will stay in the same party the state will stay with the same party so a lot of these elections that we are asked to vote for um at the local level at the state level it doesn't matter if i show up or not so like why should i pay attention to all these campaign materials and try to yeah. like decide one way or the other. No, that I think is your strongest. Uh, that's the most persuasive thing I've heard in terms of the linkage is that it might, if we had a higher number of competitive elections, then you'd have, if, if it's a, if it's not a policy choice problem, it's just a marketing problem. Then the marketing mm-hmm. problem might get solved and not just a mass of marketing, but the type of marketing, uh, the marketing problem might get solved by that. But as you said, there's always, you know, there there tend to always be undecided voters. And but what do we want them undecided around? So I, there's at least two things I want to ask about or weigh in on before we go away. One is they're both under the category of what do we do about it? One is what mm-hmm. do we do about it as political consultants, as campaigners, as candidates, as prognosticators, as advisors. And the other is what do we do about it in terms of society? So in terms of policymakers in terms of people who want a good democracy as, as democracy nerds and not wearing our partisan hat, but wearing our just democracy for democracy's sake hat. Uh, under the campaign strategist hat, do you have any other advice, any other uh, guidance for, right? Theodore White is making the president uh, about the, I think it was the Kennedy campaign. I talked a lot about, well, it's how you can win over some of those people is with, is with image. Right is with is with getting to them in the right way, not really about the right thing, but in the right way. Do you have any advice either along those lines or different than that to give to the campaigner who's trying to think about or think uh, towards the undecided voter? Oops, that's a tough question. If if I if I had the good answer, I feel like I'd be. You'd have a different job. But I, I would have a different job. Yeah, I'd be the most uh, in demand person in D.C. Um, yeah, I think for campaigns, you know, it's, um, yeah, I mean, because policy-wise, the undecided voter is like a bit all over the place. So it's it'd be hard to like campaign with a a mix of policies, right? For for voters, like, because as a party, you want to show like a cohesive program, a cohesive policy agenda, 
So it, it wouldn't be wise to kind of like diversify the policy positions or something. Um, but maybe, you know, making making it more about what's at stake for is your day-to-day -day life. So it's, it's not about, oftentimes, a lot of these campaigns and policy and, and like races come to these like issues that maybe like a lot of people don't really care about or, or understand about. And we hear a lot of things that maybe we've never heard about, but like, what does it mean for my day-to-day -day life, right? So make, maybe having a more compelling message for that. What the message is, I, I don't know. Like if, yeah. if I did, I, I would You'd have a different job. sell it to, to, a, to a consultant. <laughs> All right. Um, so, so other, in, if you imagine yourself, as we think about why we care about this, I mean, that's part of like, why do we care about it? I understand why I care about it if I'm trying to win a race because I'm wanting them to become decided in my favor. But if I just care about democracy itself, I guess, why do I care? Yeah, so I think for democracy, it's actually the current situation we're in with undecided voters and the fact that partisans are so, I think like the the word in fashion these days in, in political science is to say that it's it's calcified. So the uh, politics are so calcified where like everyone has been sorted to the different sides. We have all these Democrats, all these Republicans, no one is, no one is budging. And then you only have these like people in in the middle who are undecided, maybe independent, maybe swing voters, maybe just like voters that we think uh, can make a difference. So I think that is bad for democracy in the sense that then what is the point of an election then if it comes down to random noise that would convince uh, an undecided voter like the day of the election, right? What's the point of an election if like it's going to swing one way or another depending on if it rains on election day and that maybe discourages a possible voter from going out to vote or not. Um, and then like, what is the point of an election if so many elections are already decided in the primaries when there's no partisan competition? So it's it the district will remain blue or, or remain red no matter what. So I think in terms of when we think of normatively about democracy, you know, how, how do we hold our politicians accountable? How do we hold the parties accountable if there's no competition? Um, so in that sense, it's, it's really bad for, for accountability. Um, and it's bad for like expressing the policy views of, of the population at large, because then it magnifies the, the policy views of these mythical undecided voters at the expense of the policy views of the majority of, of the population, right? So I, I don't think that's very democratic. Uh, I would like a more competitive system or a system that introduces more competition within the parties, which would help for a lot of the things that I care about, like accountability, the performance in office of, of politicians, and just making sure that everyone's vote, everyone's voice is listened to and it's not uh, ignored to just because of the way that our elections are structured. Yeah, you talking gave me a chance not only to hear you, but also to gather thoughts. I came up with three reasons why we might care, which overlap with yours, but at least I have, them, I have my fingers in the air. Uh, <laughs> the one is, if the people are in charge, we want them to have actually consented 
We want them to actually come to grips with their government if it is, in fact, their government. If it's a democracy, we want it to be their government. Second, mm -hmm. if some of our motivation for that is because we believe that we're smarter together than we are apart, then we want to be smarter together and have more of us together, have more of us in on the joke. Then third is a little bit different. And if the fact that current and more and more undecided voters are driven by, I'm going to call it apathy, rather than thoughtlessness, or excuse me, thoughtfulness, mm -hmm. then it means campaigns could be strategic and tactical to be more about thoughtlessness or more thoughtless means of awakening and persuading, as distinct from if undecided voters were undecided based on a set of important policy choices, then campaigns would be would have an incentive to try to persuade based on those policy choices and or or set aside policy choices. If it was thoughtful, undecided voting, then it would make campaigns more thoughtful. If we're having thought less, right. undecided, it could make campaigns less thoughtless. And that might leak into decision makers thinking the choices they make don't matter as much because they can kind of do whatever they want because there's not really accountability because all they'll end up doing is raising as much money they can and marketing to a bunch of people and trying right. to persuade them on something that might or might not be all that related to how they're governing. And by the way, that could drive down, drive apathy further because then nobody trusts the campaigns that actually be linked to what the people will do when they actually govern and increase the delta between the people who are donating and the people who are governed and make it feel like the Princeton paper is right after all. And maybe then I'm convinced that what you're doing matters. Yeah, and it just becomes a vicious cycle. Right? And it sounds not too different from where we are. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah. One other thing that interested me, uh, randomness that ultimately, I mean, that's kind of funny, right? It, it's always yeah. like, like, just like, ah, this one, I don't know. So this one, I'm like committed enough to vote. Good on you, but not sure. So how about this one? What do we, what should we think about the randomness? Yeah. So I think, you know, in, in, in political science, at least it's, it's helpful to distinguish between like some people who are more driven by long-term factors. So this is more like if you care about policy or something, then like you probably make your decision early on, right? So about, because you know what you care about, you know about the candidates. And then there's more of the shorter term decisions, which, and that's where campaigns are, are really trying to, to activate this like shorter term um, uh, decision makers, uh, voters at, in, at, at that stage, right? And for people who make their vote choice later in the game, after like campaigns have, have been going on for a while, those people, it's like hard to identify like what exactly is driving their vote, their vote choice. So there's a lot of, we say it's like randomness in their vote choice because some people might be swayed because of some last minute speech or other people might be swayed because their neighbors are going to vote and their neighbors told them this guy was cool. Other people might be swayed because of something they saw on social media like the week before or or, or they saw a photo of the candidate and, and they look good in, in the photo. So people who are making the decision like... Or the old Elaine Franklinism. She was a political consultant for Bob Packwood year in the day and I think ended up his wife uh that her old thing was a hit low hit late right to get that <laughs> short term that, that sh short term thing i'm not voting for that person right now or i am voting for that person right, right now and have that 
and have that go away. Finish your thought and or any final thought. Yeah, so I would say that, yeah, if, if you're making your decision of who to vote for like the day before, after the campaigns have made their case, those are really hard to predict, those those voting choices. So, and it comes down to, you know, who knows? It's like a, a bunch of different factors. So those are very hard to, to predict. Um, yeah, no, and, and just as I think the most valuable thing of this exercise for me is less so of, of trying to figure out a campaign message for for a campaign or like you know what is the right message to reach to undecided voters i think the takeaway there is like it's it's hard to figure out what what exactly they want because if if you look at, at their policy views it's it's a bit all over the place um but more and more important than that is that what it means for democracy so what we were just talking about and the implications that it does for that it has for american democracy um in terms of holding our politicians accountable and making sure that everyone's voice is being heard so i think it the focus on undecided voters really shows like one of the pathologies of the our current two-party system and the fact that everyone has been sorted into their political camps and as you said you know this can lead into this like vicious cycle and like some sort of, of breaking point so i think it, it really illustrates the need for reform of of our electoral system oscar pukasangre senior data analyst for the political reform program at new america thank you very much by the way i got to put in a plug for a couple things and maybe just reinforcing priors and if people want to push back feel free to go to the website feel free to email us feel free to make a comment i would welcome your own thoughts but it it comes back to two things I heard. One thing I thought of, one thing you said in terms of what we do uh, is civic education early on because then more people know more stuff. And second, something you said, community-driven campaigns. I didn't just say grassroots, but campaigns that are built around values and relationships and not only about mass marketing. Uh, and again, that can just reinforce priors, but it did reinforce those priors. Yeah, not just about fundraising, right, which is yeah. most of what the parties do these days. Yeah. Oscar, thank you so much for your insight. Thank you so much for the research you do. And thank you for being a democracy nerd. Jeff, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Yeah, it was fun. Cheers. Hope right. to connect right. again. Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seeliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, Democracy.